Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and Fully Loaded Chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. On today's episode, I have Jake Bush on the podcast. He's become somewhat of a hill country hunting specialist, puts in as much work and time in the field as anyone I know, and has been able to find a really large degree of success. So it's good to be able to have him on the podcast and be able to pick his brain and compare notes. Before we dive in, I have a quick update on the Spartan Forge app. The beta release of the app is pretty imminent at this point. It's just a waiting game on the app stores to release, and by the time you're listening to this, it might even be live. Historical weather and forecasting will be pretty dialed in. I've been able to do quite a bit of testing on pretty much every hunt that we've gone on so far, and I'm already using the month-specific wind and weather averages for hunt planning purposes. As mentioned before, there will be a mapping function with the app. Currently, imagery, topography, tracking, and waypoint functions, and offline maps are all working well. Additional functions like public land boundaries, custom satellite imagery downloads, and LiDAR layers are also being developed, along with customized waypoint sharing and live location updates for other people in your group if you so choose. The initial beta release will cost $29.99, which is $10 more than the web-based version last fall, and that price would be retained for life for the people who joined while in beta. The code DIY will get you an additional 25% off of that price. All right, on the podcast today, I have Jake Bush. Jake, thanks for jumping on the podcast tonight, taking some time out of your busy schedule. And, you know, I'm really excited to talk to you about some specifics of hunting hill country deer. And why don't you go ahead and give the listeners just a, a brief summary about you, um, what you like to do in terms of your your hunting and in, in your location in Ohio and, and some of the things that kind of relate to that. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on Garrett and, uh, been a big fan for a long time throughout your DIY sportsman. I've learned a lot from you on YouTube as well. Just, uh, just so you know, so that's really cool. Uh, Jake Bush, I'm just a regular bow hunter. Like probably most of you guys listening to this podcast, I grew up bow hunting. Um, I've really kind of taken the public land thing to a new level. I, I'm, I'm trying to really focus on public land. I'm trying to focus on different types of terrain as well, but I tend to focus more on hill country. Um, it's just where I find the most consistency for my style. And it seems like the biggest year as well. So really focus on hill country, uh, run and gun. I spend basically 365 days a year scouting, whether it's e-scouting boots on the ground, trying to locate the biggest deer I can and trying to go after them as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible. So I can kind of move throughout the country as well. Um, that's pretty much it, man. Cool. And we'll jump ahead a little bit, but do you find that a lot of the scouting you do in your home area has a large level of correlation with some of the other places you end up traveling to? I do. Yeah. And that was one of the really nice things that from moving from New York to Ohio to your hunted a lot of hill country and scouted a lot of hill country there anyways. And so coming here, it was kind of the same thing, except the deer were just bigger and there was less pressure. So, uh, yeah. And then like, whether I go out West, whether I go to certain areas in Michigan, even, 
any sort of hill country generally has the same fundamentals. Okay. Yeah. And we have some hill country for sure, pretty close to me. And occasionally I'll go out of state. I know some of the places I'll be hunting this year are absolutely hill country. And because it's not the only thing I hunt, I tend to not think I, I know it as well as maybe I would if I was totally immersed in it all the time. Um, I've definitely picked up some stuff hunting the hills over the years. I mean, wind and thermals play obviously a huge role, but I've also seen even that if you have more bottom access versus top access for where the hunters are coming in, I mean, that could play it's seeming, seemingly a very large role as well. Um, for the stuff that you tend to gravitate towards, would you say that it's mostly just kind of big woods hills or is there a lot of agriculture that's mixed in? So it's, it's mixed quite a bit and it really depends on like the section, especially in Ohio, it depends, it, it really depends on the section that you're getting into. Um, but I find that the bigger deer, the deer that I want to chase are generally in some sort of ag mixed as well. And it seems like just the population in general, the further you get into the big woods down here, there's just less deer in general. So, you know, along some of the private ag that's hill country that butts up against it, I'll have two or three four-year-old bucks with on that same ridge system that I can chase, where if I go back on a clear cut a mile and a half in where there's no ag at all, I might only have one deer in that hub that I want to pursue. And so from an odd standpoint, I find myself leaning towards the ag situations more, if that makes sense. Okay. And when there is that ag, is it mostly kind of hilltop fields and then you have steep drainages that are all kind of wooded or do you have bottom fields and you'd have to climb up to the tops or is it a mixture of both? So it's mainly ag in the bottoms and access in the bottoms as well. There is areas of Ohio that you can find that top access and you can find the ag on top, but I feel like there's a lot more pressure in those areas and it's harder to get away from people as well. Access is a huge deal down here. You know, you're, I'm constantly trying to find not necessarily the deepest spots, but the spots that are hard to access, whether it's like a river, whether it's a big Creek, whether it's uh, just a easement, like a very thin easement that's, you know, you have to park on the edge of a highway almost to like get in a certain spot. Those areas tend to have the deer that I'm looking for and kind of the caliber that I'm looking for. And, uh, I would say, yeah, most of what I'm targeting is down in the bottoms. Okay. That, yeah, that's really interesting. Cause I mean, like I said, we have kind of a mix and most of the places I'm somewhat familiar with, um, hunting hill country you have a lot of hilltop fields. And like you said, people access them from the tops. And to a, a certain standpoint, that can be good because it can push those deer out in the bottoms. But then during the firearm season, what I think happens a lot is people will get in big groups and just get in that top access and they'll have a couple standards down in the bottoms and they'll just funnel those deer, you know, deer drive them right out through the, um, the creek drainages. And it makes it hard for, for deer to get age in that type of scenario. Oh yeah. I couldn't agree more. I see the same thing here and I, I find more vehicles parked up top. I find a lot more hunter sign in general and seems like a lot of guys are willing to take like a, uh, a ladder stand or more of like a, a permanent set and drag it down a hill from a road as opposed to dragging it up one of the yeah. big hills. So I find so many more tree stands in general and that's just something I'm trying to battle all the time. Yeah. It's a good point. Although I have seen, I have seen some good hilltop field areas, but typically it's when the bottom fields are on public and the top fields are on private. 
and the people on private either don't hunt or they are like hardcore bow hunters and they're passing on everything. It's like a totally different scenario than when you have public access on the, the hilltops, it seems. Um, I guess going on from there then, if you find these areas that you feel like have lower hunting pressure, do you tend to like to, you know, also access from those bottom areas, um, but then continue your hunt in most often the kind of the lower areas, or you often start at the bottom and get to the top and plan your hunts more around kind of hunting from the top down. So it's situational. Uh, I find myself in general leaning more towards like the upper system of those ridges. So generally the areas that I'm looking for have big hubs. So it'll be, you know, like the, the pinwheel or the spokes of a tire and you'll have different ridge systems all around it, like probably 270 degrees and the bucks based on specific wind will be bedded on like whatever one of those points juts out for that wind direction. And, uh, you can hunt the, you can hunt the hubs. It depends on the specific topography, like the wind velocity, um, you know, is it a sunny day? Is it a cloudy day? There's, there's a lot of different factors in that, but I really try to get up on the specific ridge that I think that deer is bedded on more often, just so I have the downward thermal pull at night to my advantage. Like I'm, I'm mainly hunting afternoons, especially early season. And I'm just trying to get him to come out of his bed and come downhill to that hub and hit some sort of food source or scrape on the way. And I'm waiting for him there where if I'm waiting for him to get down into the hub, a lot of times my wind is pulling up and swirling down there and it just doesn't play out the right way. I have to have like the perfect wind, like say that you have a ridge that runs North South and the drainages running out of that ridge run towards the East. Like if I have the, in some of those spots, if I have like the perfect five mile an hour West wind, it'll blow my scent right out of that hub, regardless of what the thermals are doing. Like it'll at least give me some sort of advantage to that hillside where if I have like a Southwest wind or a South wind in that same drainage, it's just swirling down there. It's game over. So unless I have like that exact streamlined wind in that drainage, it's, it's pointless to be down on the bottom. Is it almost kind of like if you imagine the water flowing down the hill and that predominant wind direction is blowing that exact same direction is blowing right down to where that water would go and it's just shooting all that wind out the backside? Yes, exactly. But only to a certain velocity. And what I found is I, I think it has a lot to do with like the specific terrain. So I don't want people to like take it as like a rule at all. But what I found is the higher that velocity gets, A, you'll get swirly winds, but I'll also see like almost a vacuum effect, if that makes sense. So say that I have uh, that same drainage that runs to the east and I'm coming in from the east and the buck's better to the west and I have a west wind, which should set up perfect. If it's like a 15 to 20 mile an hour wind, I mean, I'll throw a milkweed and it'll just suck all the way right up to the buck's bed. Like it'll do like a, it's almost like the wind's coming over top of that hill and creating a vacuum back. If that makes yeah. any sense. Just like a swirl so on a another... giant scale. Exactly. So then do you find the same thing if it, if the wind is like, if there's no wind dead calm that the thermals are pretty much overriding any wind that would be coming up from over the top and it, you still get that really hard to access upper thermal. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And what I try to play there is a lot of the hubs, I have like specific hubs that are kind of, they're, they're tighter than the other ones. So some, you know, your hub will be like 250 yards wide. Some of them, the hub is like 40 yards wide. 
on the, in a lot of those situations where it's dead calm, what I'll try to do is say the Bucks betted on like the eastern facing point, but there's a northeastern facing point as well. Mm-hmm. I'll try to get up on that northeastern facing point to where I can still shoot them coming down the other point, but my thermals are pulling up that other point more. Does okay, that make, that makes sense. So I'm trying to trying to play my thermal pull to a different point off of the one that he's on as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. So you're in that po- in that scenario probably hunting to where those two ridges are close enough to one another that you got just a slight enough gap that you can shoot across that gap and you, your sense pulling up this side but he's in the other one it's like you know if you yes. if you were just down and up and i guess like similar similar story if you were if the thermals were dropping in that scenario like everything would be kind of going down to that same area and it probably wouldn't work as well if he was trying to come back up but in that upward rising thermal scenario you're just off yes exactly okay and i imagine even more so later in the season once the leaves start dropping but it seems like you'd have to be ultra conscious of what the deer can see where he's betting to coming up from the bottom access in a lot of those scenarios yeah and the one thing i'm really particular about is the beds that i'm specifically targeting I've already been like, I've laid down in all of those beds or I've been at least like down on my hands and knees in them to really get a view of what they can see without the leaves on. That's really important, especially a lot of our big woods situations down here. Like there's just, once the leaves fall and all that undergrowth kind of dies, I mean, it's, it's wide open. So like last year, the day I killed my deer, I knew exactly what bed that deer was in. And from my spring scouting, I knew he could see roughly a hundred yards and the tree I wanted to get in was right at that 100 yard mark. And so I actually ended up just like crawling up the hill on my hands and knees. And I set up a couple sticks high to where I could just shoot the logging road where early season, I would have been like 20 feet high. So I could have had a better advantage on that logging road, but I yep. like just wanted to peek over it because I knew he could see that far. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I When we were down in Iowa, like Northeastern Iowa turkey hunting this year, I was hoping to be able to get like a little bit of scouting in while I was turkey hunting, which we did a little bit. We found some stuff that was better than others. But the one thing that was obvious was that whatever I was learning was only really applicable for like the first couple of months of season. And what those, once those leaves came down, it was just like a totally different, totally different scenario. I mean, late May, similar to September, you can't see but 40, 60 yards, especially if the hillsides choked down with buckthorn or something. And I guess that that's another thing you tend to find that when you're looking at these big hub areas and once you get on foot and actually scout them, does it seem to be better when you have more mature open timber or do you find that it's a lot better when you get these entire hillsides that are just kind of choked down with underbrush and it's even hard to, to walk from point A to point B? That's what I'm looking for. So, you know, I talked about it on a couple podcasts, but there's, two different types of like big woods buck bedding down here. You have the wide open, like you just said, and then you have that thicker, like the areas where they can't really see as far and they feel more comfortable as well. But a lot of the deer that I have on camera or that I've ran cameras in, in the past in certain areas that are like wide open, I just, I can't target that deer early season because they're not moving far enough in daylight to be able to get close enough 90% of the time. Now, during like a late October situation, I think you can play that a little bit better and get a little more movement. But so I'm really targeting the thicker areas, especially early season when they're not moving as far. I mean, you just, 
you know, I'm hoping for a deer to move 80 to a hundred yards and sometimes only like 50 yards until I can shoot him. And some of those spots, I mean, I would, I, I can only get within 150 yards or even 200 yards. So I just, I don't even target those early season. I do have a couple spots like that for like a late October situation. But yeah, I'm really targeting. If I can find a really good hub with clear cuts or with just a lot of green, green, bright. Um, one thing I've started to target a little bit more too, is we do have like some random mudslide areas down here that grow up really thick and they have really good bedding on top of them as well. But that's, that's just another thing that I've been kind of keying in on. And it seems like every time I find one of those, I find a pretty good buck nearby. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And it seems like also that whole philosophy just seems to work its way out in the fact that it's harder for guys to gun hunt it also. Um, having gone into some of the hills down in the southeastern part of Minnesota during the gun season, I don't know what the hunting pressure is like in Ohio. It's pretty bad in that part of the state during the shotgun season down here, which also coincides with the rut. And you get into some of those areas that are thick and you're like, how, how can an area like this support this much hunting pressure? And then you realize that it, like these deer can just in some of those hillsides, even if the foliage is down, it's thick enough that you can't really shoot. You could see a deer 50 yards in there and not be able to shoot it. And I think that, that just seems to to make a lot of sense when you think about it, not only in that context in terms of, you know, can deer grow old and, and be able to make it through a season in that type of terrain, uh, but also just the huntability and being able to sneak in close. Yeah, I think that has a huge impact on it. And it same thing. It seems like the most mature bucks I find are in the thickest areas and it's for all those reasons. And do you find that it's all thick around where some of these bigger bucks are, or do you find that it's like patchy like the hillside might be really thick but then there's like an edge and on top it's kind of clear or vice versa maybe the top is just super choked down with you know clear cut but then the hillside itself is more open so it depends on the time of year but i would say in general it's patchy and it's like that the hard transition line thing like i for for some reason i find a lot of them like right on that transition line or bedded really close to it especially if that transition runs up on like the upper third or all the way up the ridge or on like a logging road higher up, like even the upper half of the ridge. Um, yeah, I find that a lot. It's, I've got one area really anywhere that's really thick hill country for just thousands of acres. And it doesn't really produce that good. And I, I know they're in there too, but it's a huntability thing. Like you were talking yeah. about, there's limited trees to get in there. It's, unbelievably thick it's noisy and they just have every advantage going for them and it's it's hard to pattern them on top of it so it's uh it's a tough area but yeah i would say generally the patchy areas are what i'm targeting okay and early season let's i guess plan out like a scenario hunt when your season opens are they primarily still feeding on acorns at that time of year or have they run out of acorns and started to shift to other food sources so they're feeding on acorns heavily in Southern Ohio from mid September all the way in all the way through shed season. I mean, it's on the acorn crop down here is unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it. I've been here for this. Is, this will be my third hunting season and it's like marbles on the ground everywhere you go. And so they shift a little bit based on that, but it seems like most of these flats are producing for a long time and they just, they produce so much mass that there's just, like 
limitless food for months. So I don't really see a shift in my best areas. Um, you know, and I think that has to do with like the fact that I'm targeting some of these areas with clear cuts as well, where they have some sort of food source in that general hub year round. You know, I do have some oak flats that eventually they do dry up and the deer will shift like anywhere from a mile to two miles to just grass fields. They'll be down in the grass fields and I've seen them travel even further in the summertime for uh, beans. Like I'll glass a lot of my bucks in the summertime and bean fields up to two miles away. And I'll know that specific deer from the public and I'll have cameras waiting on him to come back to the acorn drop in September. And uh, generally it works out pretty good. I mean, I just had the last couple of weeks, all of the cameras I've had out have finally started lighting up. And on a lot of them, I didn't have, I wouldn't say a lot of them, but I would say on, probably 30% of them. I didn't even have a deer on that camera for two and a half months while it was out. It was just a matter of them finally shifting back. But yeah, the, the best areas that I have, have just great acorn crop. They have just any, like some sort of clear cut or green briar for them to feed on as well. And so they're, they're always in that area. And so when you plan on an early season setup, you've already been there, you scouted where the most likely beds are. So, you know, when you get whatever wind direction it is, you get a pretty decent idea of where that buck might be and you want to get in, you know, 40, 50, hundred yards, whatever the scenario allows for. But are you trying to pick spots that also have like an isolated, like the first isolated oak tree that's near them? Or is it just like almost too much to, to try and deal with because there's so many oak trees that they could feed right next to their bed and you're just hoping that they meander close enough before dark? Yeah. So I'm definitely looking for those areas that have like a very good secondary food source. So, you know, like the primary would be your destination for the night, whether it's a white oak flat or a private ag field, you know, corn, beans, grass, alfalfa, whatever it is, um, even a clear cut in certain situations. But what I'm looking for, like, let's say I have five bucks, they're the same size, same age class, and they all bed on a ridge that sets up for a Southwest wind. And I have a Southwest wind that day. What I'm going to be really trying to key in on is which one's the most killable. And one of the big factors in that is, is there a secondary food source within, let's say 100 yards of that bed that I can get to and set up on and just have them drop down off that ridge. The other thing I'm looking for in most cases is can he drop down and not necessarily go up? Cause I do have some bucks that their secondary food source is actually up the ridge. They'll go up on top and then they'll circle back around to an ag field or they'll hit an ag field on the windward side. And that's a lot harder for me to target. So I'm really looking for them dropping downwind like towards me where, I, where my setup would be on that secondary source. What I'm normally targeting is like a single white Oak tree. If I can find one white Oak that's dropping, even a red Oak, if I can find any Oak tree that's dropping that day when I'm scouting my way in and like, you know, I look up the ridge, I'm like, okay, that buck should be bedded 120 yards away from me. And I stop and listen for a second. And I can hear acorns dropping on that ridge side about halfway. Like that's, that's where I need to be, especially if there's hot sign in there, I need to get to that tree somehow. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And if you're walking in on that kind of an access at that time of day, when you're going into that access, you have that, you know, strong wind coming up over the top, you know, probably would be in your face in the absence of any thermals. 
And you can tell, okay, that buck's bedded up here. He's going to drop down a little bit. I'm going to sneak in there. But at that point in time, there's probably also some amount of upward draft of your thermals also. So how are you dealing with that on your entrance route? So that's one of the factors I'm looking into as well. You know, like ideally I would like to have a Southwest wind or even a Southerly wind more often because they're going to be bedded on that Northern slope of that hub system a little bit more often. What I find in a lot of my spots is they're, they're pretty steep. I mean, that's, it's pretty good grade. And on a lot of those North slopes, even if it's a 90 degree day, I'm not seeing a like direct thermal pull up that ridge system. It's just my, my thermals aren't rising all the way up to those bucks. And I think it's because that hillside shaded, you know, or if I have like a Southwest wind where I have a little bit of West in it too, it'll actually push like my wind just off that buck's bed. So if I'm below them on that North facing slope, instead of my thermals going straight up to them, they'll go like up to the left. If I'm looking at him, my thermals will go up and to the left. So like towards the East. And I'm trying to just play every situation like that. And, you know, when I get in there, I'm looking at that, like for my setup as well. Okay. Here's my white Oak tree. I want to set up on it's dropping acorns right now. I want to set up on the, it'd be the North East side of that white Oak. So my thermals are pulling more to the East than they are straight up. And there's, there's so many factors in that though. And I'm, I, you know, that as well, where, you know, leaf cover, the amount of sunlight that day, um, steepness of the slope, the specific topography of that ridge itself. There's so many different factors. So it's very situational, but as far as like a, a broad statement, that's, that's where I would be at. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. Cause that reminded me of a hunt that I went on. That was almost too steep of a hill to climb safely, like looking back on it, but it was on one of those northern slopes. We had a southern wind, and the whole time we're walking up there, it was just all shade. Like that hillside just, and this was early season, so that hill probably never saw direct sunlight throughout the entire year because how steep it was. And so I don't think it ever really has a rising thermal, uh, per se, versus obviously the opposite side of the hill. And, and yeah, that brings up a good point that we I think sometimes oversimplify what thermals do that they you know, rise when the um, when the sun hits them or just like in daylight thermals are rising when it gets, the sun goes down, thermals start dropping, but it's, it's really such an oversimplification, especially when you throw in how the prevailing wind is combining and adjusting that thermal and how much of it actually is sunlit. Is there a big tree canopy? Is it more undergrowth? Like there, there really is a lot of factors there. And I don't know, I mean, apart from the South versus North, I don't know of a good way to like really predict other than just thinking, number one, how would water flow up or down this hill? And number two, how's the sunlight? And, and I guess on Google Earth, you can kind of put on one of those layers or like drag the sun icon around and kind of see in 3D, like what might be shaded. It's a little, uh, it's a little rough. It's not super accurate, but at least to get like an idea of how much thermal generation there might be on a certain hill slope. Yeah, that's a pretty good idea. I've never really thought about that. And, uh, the other thing for me is really getting in there like throughout the year and trying to do some sort of wind mapping. So, you know, late season, I'll try to go in and throw a bunch of milkweed around, figure out like specific setups. And when I'm in there putting up cameras and checking my cameras, I use both those days as wind mapping days. 
So I already have it scouted. You know, I've already scouted all the beds. I know where all the oak trees are at. I know where like the main terrain features that are going to funnel our deer are at. I know where the community scrapes at the, what I can do to my advantage on those days I'm putting cameras up and taking them down. It's just check the wind. And that's the most real time Intel you're going to get as far as wind mapping goes, because it's summertime, the leaves are on, it's going to be warmer days, preferably. Um, and I, I would like to say that I get out there more often for like different wind directions, but I try not to intrude too much, but I would like to get out. Maybe that's something I could set up over time is like, Hey, this year I'm going to go to this spot and I'm going to put my cameras out and check them on a West wind. This year, I'm going to do it on a north wind. This year, I'm going to do it on an east wind. And just try to, like, over the years, just map these areas better. But it's, it's, it's always changing. That's the crazy part about thermals is, you know, from day to day or, like you said, when leaf cover starts dropping. I mean, you could even have something as simple as a tree falls down. And that's going to throw your setup a little bit off. And I don't know how many guys are really getting that in depth with trying to beat the nose of a deer just with thermals but there's there's a lot there and uh i mean i base everything i do off it yeah you pretty much have to in in this type of scenario it seems like um how so how about you know we talked about the ideal southern wind northern slope minimal you know upward thermal pull from an access standpoint what about the opposite what if you get just a week of northerly winds it's still early season you know, you're going to have to somewhat deal with that rising thermal. I mean, do you just find less opportunities to really make setups and maybe you just do some more scouting or hold off, or do you still try and, you know, play with whatever the best scenario you can think up on a, any given day? So on the, on the day, day, and it's, it's like a midday switch. I would play that to my advantage, like on both ends of the spectrum, those are going to be two days. I really target. Besides that, I do have, I have areas where, you know, they're bedded on the south facing slope to a certain extent for that wind. And then it's a matter of where they're traveling to. So I just, in most of my setups, I just, I can't intrude as far. I can't get up on the hillside or um, like press to the certain hub I want to get to, I would have to sit back a little bit further. And generally it doesn't work out the way that I want it to in the Hills, at least, at least from an early season standpoint, during the, during like the pre-rut or rut, it's way different. You know, you can still play a lot of your big community hub scrapes off of that, especially if they're down in the hub. Um, but yeah, you can't really like cheat the thermals by sitting on the opposite Ridge because that one's going to be shaded more than likely. So you kind of have to give up something. I try not to be as aggressive on those days. Um, and my, my spots are definitely, if I'm on a buck pretty like a south wind or a west wind and I have a north wind coming in, he jumps to the other side of that ridge. I'll, I'll, especially down here too, it seems, I don't know why, but it seems like the south side of a lot of these ridges are, are a lot more open. They don't have as much growth on them, which really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me but they seem to be a lot more open. So like if a buck's bedded up top in some of these beds, I mean, he's up on like a logging road on the south side of that ridge and it's wide open. I mean, he can see me walking in a lot of times. And so it sets up a lot, a lot different really. Um, if I had a situation where I had a buck bedding on the south slope and it was like a logging road, and then he was one of those bucks that would go up 
Like if he would go up at night, you could play that a lot better. If you had like a Northwest wind and he was going to the Northeast out of his bed, like you could get him, but yeah, it's situational. I, I would say I have a lot less opportunities. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That, that reminds me too of like up here, we have some Hills that the fingers aren't always straight. Like sometimes they hook a little bit and yep. when, when they kind of hook around like that, you can almost just kind of wrap your way around and get a little bit like not quite all the way to where, you know, he's going to be better on that point. Cause it's a northerly wind. Um, but then he's going to have to kind of hook around. Definitely seen that be like a, a thing you can definitely, you know, use to your advantage too. So right before, I guess we, we jump into kind of shifting toward pre-rut and rut type things. How does morning hunts fit into your strategy or does it not really, it, it just from all the stuff you said so far, it sounds like morning hunts would be very difficult in most scenarios. They are. And I'm not to the level of some of those guys that can pull off like the hill country morning hunts yet with estimating like a specific J hook. It's just, to me, it's not a risk I'm willing to take. If I'm confident enough that I could sit over that spot in the morning and he's going to bed there and I could kill him. I'm confident enough that I can go in there in the afternoon and catch him doing the opposite going to like a more of a specific thing, whether it be a hub scraper, or a secondary food source. I just feel like I have more at my advantage in the afternoon. Um, I do have one spot where if I got in a pinch and I caught the buck that I've been chasing on a, like a dead Eastern facing ridge. So it's a, it's a ridge that runs North South, but it's got a really long Eastern facing point on it. And there's a bunch of fallen trees up there. And it's, I mean, almost like, like you said before, almost to the point where it's unsafe to climb up the face of that ridge. That's the one spot that I think I could pull off an early seat or, uh, or early morning hunt just because he doesn't have the ability to J hook in. He has to come in from behind and that gives him that little bit of disadvantage where I might be able to pull off that hunt, but I would have to shoot him like directly in his bed. So I do have that one in my arsenal and I've had it. I've, I've considered that hunt for the last two years. I haven't used it yet, but at any point, I mean, I could go rogue and try it, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Well, I think too, if you were in an area that maybe had more food on top, that makes it easier. Certainly. Oh yeah. Um, or like you said, you got that, maybe it's even like a bluff where you got, you climb 30 feet up a tree on the downside of the bluff and you know that deer's going to not like he has to walk on the upper edge, but your thermals are going to be off that cliff, but that's yeah. very situation specific. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You would almost have to be set up. You'd have to be set up from, you know, like downhill, but you, you would, you would have to be in like the perfect situation. If you ask me, I'm just not willing to take that risk very often. Yeah. It would take a lot. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like in your, in your most common scenario, I don't think I would be hunting mornings either. Most likely unless there was like, you know, maybe, a, maybe mornings you hunt does or, you know, you do something, something a little bit different. Um, now shifting into say pre-rut, maybe a different story. Yes. Once you get into that time frame, is it mid October ish where things really start to kind of change for you? Yeah, I would say it's like probably the 20, I would say around the 20th, but I really get into like the pre-rut tactics around like the 25th. And I see the best activity down here in Ohio from like the 28th to November 3rd or 4th. 
where that to me is like my scrape week. I feel like it's a couple of days delayed from certain areas in the country. Um, but yeah, I would say at that point it's, it's morning hunts as well. Okay. Do you find most of your scrapes down in those bottom hubs? At least the ones, that you, the ones that you're really targeting. The majority of them. Yeah. I do have a couple that are really good that are on like the, the lower third of a ridge system. So if you have like a, like say that up on top, you have a bunch of different ridges that jut out like points that jut out on a ridge and they kind of funnel down to a bottom. If you have like the one ridge, they travel down more than all the rest where they kind of meet normally on like the lower third of that ridge, I'll find a pretty good community scrape. And so I target those a lot. I actually prefer to target those as opposed to the hub scrapes late season, like late October. Um, just because it, I, I have more activity on them. I feel like they're a little more comfortable in the daylight on them. And from my camera Intel over the last couple of years down here, it's just like, I mean, they'll, I, I have certain areas where I have a couple really good bucks that'll hit the scrape on the hillside at like eight o'clock at 11 o'clock at two o'clock. And then they'll go out to a, a egg field at five o'clock. I mean, they'll hit it three or four times in a day even. And down in the hubs, I'm generally only getting like still that it'll be later morning and earlier afternoon, but it's generally like a direction-based scrape activity as opposed to, hey, I'm coming off my bed for 20 minutes to go check that scrape because mm -hmm. I saw another deer walk through it. Yeah, And that's the other thing too, though. Like the best scrapes that I'm finding are on ridges that have bedding above them. So they're already bedded on that ridge and they're just looking down the hill all day pretty much. Yeah, I've heard other people mentioned that also and i've seen it occasionally where you stand in a scrape you walk up a ridge you find a bed and then you look down it's like oh i gotta be careful hunting that scrape because like he'd be able to see me access yeah yep exactly and so i've got one in my mind that sets up just like that the only thing got a giant cut within like 20 yards of that scrape mm. so i can walk up the cut and just kind of like pop up and set up or even set up like in the cut where i can just shoot the scrape and that one works out pretty good. And then my buddy you, shot a deer there last year, uh, October 31st. Are you still hunting that then on your evening access or are you trying to get in there in that scenario in the morning and maybe like all day sit? So I hunted it both last year. Um, I didn't kill early season last year down here and I got into, it ended up being like a middle rut situation, but late October, I hunted that spot in the afternoon because I could, it, it sets up really weird. It's got, a hiker trail that runs right at the bottom of the clear cut that they're betting on. And they come off that clear cut, it turns into hardwoods and there's a scrape. There's a big community scrape and I get tons of bucks on it. So if I act like a hiker, I can walk right past the bucks and kind of circle back and set up. And I know they watch me access that, but they come right down and hit the scrape regardless. Like they don't care at all. Hmm. Um, so that's, that's one of my tactics there. And yeah, I hunted it in the afternoon a couple times and I had the most activity on that in the morning, but I could have killed like a mid sixties, 12 point, uh, at 1230 in the afternoon. And I, the day my buddy killed October 31st, we drug his deer out and we were already down in that area. So I was like, Hey, let's go throw my afternoon sit at it. Like deers in the truck. Let's go back in. And, uh, we got to that scrape and I had my camera on it and my camera was elevated. And I was like, well, I'm not going to check my camera right now because I want to hunt. So we walked past the scrape and up through a saddle and hunted the backside of that. 
And literally an hour and a half later, that buck came through daylight and hit the scrape. I was <laughs> heartbroken. I could not believe it. Yeah. That, that's tough. They do that. Even around, like, not even hill country, but, like, last year, during that October time frame, I get so many random pictures of bucks coming through in daylight, but not consistently. Like, one day you get one come through at, like, 10 a.m., and it was like a like really nice mature buck and then maybe like two days later the thing happens again but like it's like a different buck in a different time of day in a different direction it's like man maybe i gotta start hunting all day more in october instead of so waiting for you, november have you uh like had cameras in that area for a couple of years or was that kind no, of like a i put them up in this area i'm thinking about specifically i put a lot of the cameras up i put a couple of them up in like late september um but the majority of them actually put up on like October 15th. Like we just went out there and sign was everywhere. And we're just like, okay, well this one's got big tracks and let's hang a camera over this scrape. And then we'd like scout more and hang another one. Um, and like the most, some of them were like on pseudo pinch points. A lot of them were on scrapes, but yeah, they were getting hit right away. And kind of throughout that duration, all through like the first week of November, a lot of daylight light activity, but not, uh, not a ton of, predictability to it it seemed like and this was kind of more bigger woods terrain yeah so the spot i was talking about is like really big woods i mean there's no egg for a long ways and at first it was like very unpredictable camera intel like i'd get a buck same thing like late october one would show up and he'd be there like every two days and then he would leave november 4th but i had like four or five bucks do that on a different day within that time frame so last year i put a camera in the same area and the exact like the that day to the date it was like the 27th of october those same bucks moved in three of the exact same bucks from the year before and they were there until like november 3rd or 4th so it was if you're like looking at it really fine-tuned and focused it was very unpredictable but when i opened back up and looked at like the annual patterns mm. they were both there two years in a row so i'm gonna have a camera in that same spot again and that's a spot where I plan on, if I have a tag, I'm going to go target one of those three bucks this year over that same scrape in that time frame, just based off like that seasonal intel, like the annual intel of that spot. Yeah, that, that's awesome. That's something I'm going to have to try this year too. And I've been hoping it would be the case because there was a lot of deer last year that I probably, there were shooters last year. Like if they are still around, they're going to be really nice. Um, I think a couple of them got shot, but. I know like to the day, like, oh, this is really nice mature bucket. This is 9 a.m. like on this day. And I know what the weather conditions were like, hopefully it does that again. And yeah, to your point, I think that's that's a really interesting piece of, of information, the year over year, as opposed to just looking at one season and thinking what the heck's going on. Yeah, and it seems like from my experience anyways, it seems like Big Woods Hill Country has a lot more of those patterns. So as nomadic as those deer are, it seems like they hit the same areas, like the same time frame. Like they almost have a routine that they, like an annual routine where they're like, okay, you know, it's time to move over in this hub or it's time to go look for does in this clear cut. And they just kind of make that, make that lap. And yeah, you can catch them for sure. One, just kind of going back to that uh, scrape example on the, the low hill. Do you, I mean, you just find them right on like the, the hillside or are they usually like on kind of those lower benches? Yeah. So it's almost always on those benches. I don't think that I've ever found a community scrape on like any sort of grade. So it's always 
at least, I mean, sometimes the scrape is on the bench, like the bench is only five or six feet and that's like the level area and that's where the scrapes at. So yeah, I definitely on the benches of those Hills for sure. Do you have any like old logging roads that are cut into the hillside or just creates like a flat zone and that place will just be kind of like tore up with like a scrape line? Yeah. Especially if that's like on the, what I see there though, that's not necessarily the lower third down here. If I can find a logging road that's in like a, let's say a eight to 12 year old clear cut where it's, you know, it's overhead and it's starting to get almost out of the thick stage where it's actually starting to get like little trees in it. Um, I'll notice that those logging roads are like really good scraping areas. This seems to be something that, or just sign in general, like signpost rubs. I'll find a lot of signpost rubs on those. And I think it's because they're just comfortable, you know, traveling that in the daylight. It's still thick. It's on the upper third. They can cruise basically what's now just a doe bedding area for does and smell them with that thermal pole. Yeah. It always seemed like the place I had the largest concentration of just rut sign was always like trees that range from like the two inch to maybe like the five or six inch diameter. Like those places, like I'm sure deer were using other areas, but like you said, the does like to bed in those spots. Yeah. And it's easy for the bucks to travel along and even through them in some cases, but still feel secure. Yeah, the most sign I find, especially rut sign, you know, like good rubs and stuff is in the exact same situation. Those older cuts that are kind of just like growing up now. Yeah, and there's there's never really a lot of like tall trees in them and if there are they're really exposed so you never really i don't think get the same level of hunting pressure in those areas either yeah oh there's no way i mean it's if you were to sit in one of those trees like they would just pick you out immediately they can especially when the when the leaves fall down they can look through what they're walking in and look up and see you looking like mm -hmm. crazy out of a tree <laughs> yeah they could set up nice for ground setups though oh 100 yeah um so scrapes more or less it seems like low is is better at least in the, the area where you're at but you also get the occasional high scrapes that you can hunt off of is there any sort of i guess preference for northerly or southerly winds this time of year for you or now have you kind of gotten to the phase where you know if it's a south wind i'm, I'm hunting one of these scrapes where i have the or like the north side of a system and vice versa for a northern wind and i'm just gonna hunt that and play it no matter which scenario it is so i i get the the allure of the north wind thing because that kind of comes with like a cold front that time of year which is mm -hmm. killer it's really good but i'm still kind of late october i'm still on that bedding routine it's just instead of the bed to food as much i'm really at that bed to community scrape so i'm still targeting preferably like a southern wind or a westerly wind where they're bedded more often mm -hmm. and i'm still trying to catch them coming down to just that hub scrape if that makes sense so i do have the same situation on the north wind but they have to travel further to get to where the hub scrapes are at you know like for me if i have if i have one hub and like one community scrape in it generally that is gonna lean towards a southerly bedding situation I'm sorry, a northerly better betting situation based on a southerly wind. So like your typical wind. Yep. So north winds, I do still target them. I just target them different. And uh I, I would I would prefer a southerly wind still. 
but I do like cold fronts. So it's like this yeah. love hate thing going on. Yeah. You're just more, a little bit more specific about how you dive in and tackle a North wind. Yeah. Okay. Now let's say we're kind of transitioning from pre-rut to more of the rut. We're expecting maybe more actual cruising activity. Then do you prefer your North wind cold fronts a little bit more? I do. And I'm probably the worst person to talk to about like a rut situation to be completely honest. Um, the majority of the time. So I hunted in, I grew up in New York and then I hunted Ohio, which were both one buck tags as far as archery goes in New York, you get a gun tag as well, but you can't use that until like mid November. Um, and the majority of years I'm, I'm tagged out before the rut in my home state. And the traveling thing to me is only something I started doing in like the last three to four years as far as like traveling out of state during a rut situation more often. So I do like North winds. Um, last year in a rut situation, I actually ended up killing my buck out of his bed. It was late. It was November 17th. I had been hunting that whole month of November, trying to get on a cruising buck and I was seeing him, but I was just off and Hill country will like play games with you a little bit. You know, you think you're in, you think you're above the right hogs back or you think you're in the right saddle or like upwind up thermal pole with the right doe bedding area and they seem to just slip by you a lot and uh i finally got in a situation where i went in and hot sign opened back up so it wasn't rut sign it was like early october sign where all this or even late october sign all the scrapes started opening back up and i was like you know what this buck doesn't have a doe with him he, he came in and he hit the community scrape he peed in it. He had his big tracks in it. And then he hit three or four more scrapes and opened up a couple rubs. I was like, there's no way that he's doing all that with a doe November 17th. I think what's going on is he's alone and he came in here to bed and then he's going to cruise again. And so I went, it, we had a perfect Southwest wind. I went right to that bed that I was telling you about where I crawled up the hill on my hands and knees and said, he's bedded here. He's going to come this way to the community scrape and I killed him doing that exact same thing. So I actually killed him doing a late October pattern, mid November. Interesting. Yeah. It just goes to show play the, the hand you're dealt and don't just assume that the deer should be acting a certain way. Yeah. And it's, it's really hard for me, you know, like I try to be so dialed in and fine tuned going into season and like being very specific with where I'm sitting. It's really hard for me to get into a rut situation and just like sit somewhere for an entire day. I have a lot of, I just feel like I'm not playing chess anymore. Like I'm just sitting somewhere and just like praying yeah. that a, a good buck walks by me. And yes, that's very effective in certain areas and some guys are great at it. I'm terrible at it. So it's a work <laughs> in progress, but if I can try to like even get what I know I'm good at back a little bit. Like, Hey, I think he's in this bed. I'm just going to go for that instead, regardless of what time of year it is. Yeah. Yeah. For me, there's, there's more allure maybe to that classic rut scenario for an out of state trip, I guess one, because in Minnesota it's during the firearm season, but number two, because you don't have necessarily always that history or as much boots on the ground experience as you do at home. And you're like, well, this area should hold a lot of good deer. And so this will give me the best opportunity to hopefully get in a crack at one of them without having two weeks to scout beforehand. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely love that allure of like the very pinpoint surgical strike got every, everything, you know, accounted for, or at least you hope so. And then dive in and then pull it off. And it's like the best feeling ever. It is. Yeah. It's, there's nothing like it. 
and then it sounded like late season they still pretty much are feeding on for the most part acorns and browse a lot of times or there are occasions where in some of the mixed ag areas you get you know lower fields that are just dynamite yeah so especially in ohio and the hills um i'm finding 90 percent of the feeding going on in oak flats still I've got a lot of deer that time of year that will bed right in the oak flat. So like I'll run late season cameras on a specific oak flat kind of for the shed thing, but kind of for like a late season pattern if I need it. And last year was amazing. I mean, I had a bunch of like four or five, six year old bucks that would bed down all day right in the oak flat. If it was on the right Ridge, if it set up for a decent wind for them, they wouldn't even move. And we had, it was kind of an unusual year though. We had a lot of snow down here. I mean, we were up to over a foot at one point, which for Southern Ohio is like very strange. Mm -hmm. And I think that might've had an effect on that. But um, as far as like my shed hunting goes too. So last year I found 49 sheds and over 40 of them were on Oak Flats on public in the Hills. So that's just like where that's where they're at from, you know, late season all the way through dropping their antlers interesting yeah I, I noticed sometimes around here you know we all hear about all oh, late season you hit the hot you know standing beans whatever you know whatever that hot agriculture food source is the deer are going to flock to it but it seems like very rarely around public land will ever actually find that scenario like most often the crops are picked and the deer like you said they're just eating whatever they have available and so i feel like that's a much a much more um i guess standardized way of, of trying to figure out how to tackle late season rather than just hoping you're going to get the gift of a, a hot late season egg source. Yeah. I, I target them just like I do early season, just on, it's generally the opposite ridges at that point. So it would be more of a South facing Ridge. That's where I find most of my antlers. And uh, the only other thing to mention on that is briar patches that time of year are amazing as well, especially down here in Ohio. You can find greenbrier, which is, you know, it's not everywhere. It's like if you have a thousand acres of hardwoods, you might have where a tree fell down or like a logging road that has greenbrier on it. That's where the bedding is going to be at. And between that greenbrier and those oak flats is where you're going to find the deer. So you can target that greenbrier, like, hey, I know he's bedded here. And you go into that situation, you're like, okay, well, there are all the tracks and the feeding is going on in this oak flat. I know, you know, a hundred yards in front of me, there's a greenbrier patch on the South slope. I'm just going to get halfway in between that and set up. Yeah. Do they have, uh, leaves? I don't think we have much greenbrier on here. Do they still have a little bit of leaf cover late in the season or is it just like this high stem count that holds the deer? There? Just the, just the high stem count. And they, they, it's almost like they just lay in their beds and feed on it. I mean, it's all picked off and milled off and you can see like, if you're in there real time, it's not all browned up like it's very fresh so i think they're just like laying around or maybe they'll get up midday and they'll feed on that and that would be more of the secondary food source mm -hmm. and then they would move to their primary which is those flats okay yeah it seems like at least a lot of the the hill country areas i've been and certainly greenbrier would help or at least some kind of lower um lower to the ground cover trying to get close is like a nightmare Oh yeah. Late season. It's a nightmare. That's, that's yeah. tough. That's what, I mean, that's, yeah. That's, that's the biggest thing that it's like I mentioned earlier, I have that late season Iowa tag this year 
And that's going to be like the hardest piece. So I'm, I'm trying to focus a lot on areas that we've walked like during turkey season and it's like almost too thick to walk through turkey season. You still got a lot of deer sign in, in it. It's like, well, at least I have a chance to get somewhat close in this type of scenario versus a lot of those more open, mature hardwoods. Even if the deer are using them or bedding on them, it's like, you know, good luck getting within 200 yards in some scenarios. Yeah, especially with the bow in your hand, you know, like that uh, Spartan Forge hunt that we have in January. If that's a muzzleloader hunt and we can we can do that, that's a little bit different. You know, you can pop up over some of these ridges that you know they're on the south side and pop up over the north side and you can get a shot on them for sure. But but yeah, to do it with a bow in your hand with all that, I mean, it's, everything's wide open. It's it's almost impossible. Yeah. Well, this Iowa one I'll, I'll do will be a muzzleloader one, so that'll make things certainly a lot easier. Yeah, that'll be a fun hunt. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to all my hunts this year. I got it always. Last year I had I think too many hunts that I went on, but I, I learned a lot. And then this year I dialed it back a little bit. I think I bought two fewer tags this year than next year. Although we're adding in you know that Ohio one, so that was you know, I guess one that I didn't have last year. So is the Iowa one. So I guess I'm going to have just as many hunts as I did last year. The only difference is they're going to extend. <laughs> they're not all going to be September through, through like early December. They're going to extend it into January. So that'll make things a little bit nicer. Yeah. Spread it out a little bit. Yep. I was going to ask you too, on your strategies for locating deer, because for as much time as I spend walking the woods, it doesn't always tell you everything you'd like to know for you know, what's, what's in the area, like buck wise. Right. So you mentioned you had run some cameras. Do you really have much ability to glass or shine in some of those areas in Ohio? There's pretty much trail camera or visual sightings that, uh, are informing you of what deer are using the area. Yeah, we can't shine. So I grew up shining in New York. That was a big thing. And I located a ton of good bucks and killed a lot of good bucks just based off of that Intel. So not having that changes the game quite a bit. Um, so what I've done to combat that a little bit is I run a lot more cameras. I run anywhere from 30 to 40 cameras down here. Depends. And uh, really just a lot of glassing, but it's not just the, like you have to be creative with your glassing. Like I was saying earlier, you know, I'm glassing a lot of summer destination food sources that are, that are a mile or two away from where the deer are going to be during hunting season. So it's trying to figure that out, trying to figure out what direction they're going and then what bucks out of all the deer hitting those ag sources are actually going to shift back. You know, like I have a spot where I went and glassed a really nice buck this year. I mean, a, a giant typical, and he's with four or five other bucks. And I had him on camera last year in the Hills. So I'm assuming he'll be on that camera again, come hunting season. He's not there yet, but there's a chance he might not even show up. But so it's really, you know, I'm, you're, you're taking a guess to a certain extent, but you're also trying to be as creative as possible with the glassing scenarios that you have. Um, I will glass clear cuts a little bit. So if I have like some really good bedding clear cuts, I'll try to set up on the other ridge and like these big wide open oak forests and just glass them as much as possible. We've got a couple power lines at glass. Um, I've actually got a couple spots where they'll bed really close to a road and it's like a really almost a military crest to a road, but they'll drop down that in the afternoon and feed on an oak flat on like the adjacent ridge. And so I can sit right on the road and glass them crossing the road. And so it's, I'm just trying to figure out different ways to get eyes on them. And all that I need is 
to know he's there. That's all I care about. You know, like I don't need a thousand trail camera pictures of a deer. I just want an opportunity to know he's there so I can try to put the pieces together and kill him. That's all I really care about at the end of the day. Yep. And then for those cameras you put out, do you have a preference over what types of areas you specifically put them in? Mostly on scrapes or is it a mix? So yeah, it's, I really don't have any cameras on primary food sources early season. You know, I'll shift those throughout the season onto like the late season food sources, just so I can kind of get a general idea where they're at. Um, especially with like the snow and stuff that helps out. But early season, all I really care about is the trails leading to those primary food sources. So, you know, say that on this ridge system, I have 10 different beds that set up for like a little bit off wind, like, like a south wind, a south, southwest, a southwest, a southeast, south, southeast, like all these different beds. And they're on different levels of that hill. And then there's different trails going to the same food source or the same scrape. I'll try to set up cameras in different locations based around that to try to catch that deer more often in a certain pattern. So I, I don't really have any cameras on beds. I've done that a little bit when I was younger, but it just seemed to screw the deer up a little bit. Um, and secondary food sources, I will run cameras still. So like a single oak, I'll run a camera on that because I want to see real time, you know, if I can get to that tree and I have a camera there already, and this is what I want to target, well, I can pull that camera real quick before I set up and see, okay, yeah, he's been here four out of the last six nights that just so happened to be on a south wind. You know, I can kind of put all these pieces together a little bit, which seems to help. Um, but yeah, so the, the two big things is no bed cameras and no primary food source cameras. It's mainly hub scrapes, secondary food sources and the trails in between. Okay. Do you ever put any cameras out just to kind of monitor if there's any hunting pressure in some of these areas? Not really. Um, normally, I mean, it's, it's pretty apparent down here. There's, there's only, there's only so many like running gun, running gun style hunters or like saddle hunters or hang on hunters or ground hunters. The majority of guys are just using ladder stands. They leave them up all year round, which is illegal, but what it does for me is I can clearly see where they're at all year round. I mean, these guys will access from this direction. They leave, you know, unfortunately, sometimes they leave trash. Like I can get into an area and I'm like, yeah, this gets hunted pretty hard. Or I get into an area that's kind of hard to access. You have to, you know, put some elevation between the road and yourself and there's no stands back there. I'm like, I probably have this to myself at least early season. During the rut, when you have all the out-of-state guys come in that are more hardcore, like, yeah, you're going to have some pressure in, the, in those areas. But as far as early season with the locals, you really don't have to worry about it in a lot of those spots. Okay. Yeah, it definitely seems like around here, for at least Wisconsin and Minnesota, the bow pressure is mostly locals, and it tends to be pretty low, low pressure. More small game hunters probably than, than bow hunters in a lot of cases. Now – compare that to like a Nebraska or North Dakota or someplace that has an early opener. It's like a total, especially the last couple of years, like every year seems like it's getting more and more where you get a lot of guys that are going to doing the velvet hunt. Uh, I would imagine maybe Kentucky similar or Tennessee Kentucky in the is, private. Yeah. yeah. So it's like those areas, I see more pressure and the guys that are doing it are a little bit more hardcore and they're not leaving any traces. So if you don't have like a recent rain or something or like, you know, enough like of a dirt road or whatnot to see car tracks, 
it can be tough to tell that there was a guy in there like scouting and hunting the night before, unless you like happen to just pick up on, Oh, there's some stick marks on this tree. You know, that, that can make it definitely a lot more difficult. Um, but yeah, in, in areas where you got more of that normal opener, it definitely doesn't seem like it's as big of a deal. Yeah. And even, even stuff like the thumbtacks and the trees are like the, are they night eyes? I think is what they call them. Um, it seems like the locals leave more of those. So they're easy to pattern. We're like a lot of the out of state guys now, you know, they're going in with a saddle on their back and they have Onyx or Spartan Forge or whatever hunt app they're using. And they have like, they're not leaving that stuff anymore. So right. yeah, it's a lot more difficult to pattern them. That's the one thing I've actually picked up on. It's kind of funny is I'll walk through the woods and I'll see like stick marks in a tree. I'm like, Oh, there's somebody there. <laughs> I've actually got a spot close to my house where I dove into it and it looked perfect. And I was like, man, this sets up great. It's all logged off. It's thick. It's got a swamp as a bottom. It's got some private ag fields that butt up against it. No local sign whatsoever. And I'm looking around, I'm walking through there. I'm like marking all these spots on my map. And all of a sudden I look up in the tree and there was a saddle platform. And I was like, oh, you gotta <laughs> be kidding me. Like there's a saddle guy in here. Like there's no way I'm hunting this spot now. And as I kept going, though, it was funny because there was like four or five saddle platforms and that's it. I mean, he must go in with sticks and set up. It was funny. Yeah. It's almost to the point now in some areas where you go through an e-scout and you pick your 15 best spots or whatever. It's like, it's almost like you can just take like one through five and just kind of X them off because like other people are going to be looking at that same stuff. Yep. It's funny. Yeah. Especially rut sign. Um and that's, that's something that I'm trying to do a little bit different too. Like I've got a Kansas tag this year and super, super excited about that hunt. And the one thing I'm trying to really do is, you know, I'm not going to hunt like any of the wildlife areas. I'm going to hunt walking areas out there. And I'm trying not to really look at the public and like decide if I want to hunt that spot or not based on what that looks like. I'm trying to look next door on the private to see like, okay, this private looks like it's thick or this has like you know, better funnels. And then there's like one kind of trashy funnel on the public just so I can hopefully run into less guys. You know, there's spots that you open up and you look at Kansas walking areas on your maps. And there's like five funnels that are perfect that are 15 yards wide that meet at this hub on the public. It's like, I guarantee you there's like one or two guys that are hunting that spot almost every day during the rut. Like it just, it looks so perfect on a map that I would not even go there. And I could be wrong for doing that too, I guess, but yeah. That's my mentality with it is try to just like look outside of the box, even for those hunts. Well, I've done that on like a first pass East scout in Kansas and you pick all the obvious looking stuff. And then I've talked to a couple other people who have hunted Kansas out of state and they're like, yeah, those places all are loaded with hunters during, that during the actual like hunting season. So it's like, okay. So I guess, uh, if it looks that obvious, it's too good to be true. Um, but I, I think that strategy sounds like it's probably a pretty sound strategy. Um, I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Eddie Claypool um, that I was listening to talking about hunting more, just like even treeless areas where they would, he would see more of the mature bucks, like two or three year olds, whatever would use the, the stuff that you think should be good. But a lot of times those older bucks wouldn't necessarily go into those areas, at least not during daylight. And they'd be oftentimes just like out in the plains, um, you know, rolling Hills. And that's where they would take their nose to like be out away where they can choose their eyes to be able to kind of, um, you know, protect themselves from anything that could come close. Yeah, that was, that was Eddie. And I, uh, I took away quite a bit from that podcast. Actually, like one of the things I'm looking for this year is just 
like an intersection of fences, like where there's a bunch of fences that meet. And there's like from on the map, it looks like one just tiny scrub tree. Like, I don't know if it's a, like a crab apple tree or some just sort of hedge tree, or maybe I can get like six feet high and just sit up and watch those fences the whole time. Yep. I mean, it's totally different. Yeah. That should be a super fun hunt. I'll have to watch along and see how that goes. Yeah. I'm excited, man. Do you have any other hunts planned or is it just uh local and then uh, that Kansas trip? So those are the big ones. Um, I'll probably go back to New York. I really like hunting just hill country back there and the bucks are a lot smaller, but it's just fun. It's a lot of fun to go back there and kind of chase them around. I'd like to get back into Michigan again. That was a lot of fun. Big swamp hunting late season with my bow, but that one I'm not so sure about. Um, and the one thing I'm going to, I'm going to try to do more often is just go into like Indiana and Illinois, like the Southern Hill country of both of those. Mm-hmm. And try to just kind of, I, I want to scout it more like I'm scouting Ohio and kind of treat it as like home ground and just try to find some good areas for early season, late October and venture out. But uh, I've got a lot of time off this year. So it's really just a matter of filling tags. You know, like first priority for me is get a good buck on the ground in Ohio as quickly as possible. And then I can start doing some of these traveling hunts, which I'm really starting to enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's always the, that's the toughest conundrum is, is when you try and pressure yourself to, Oh, I got to get this tag filled early so I can do these other things. And then just like, you know, last year, you know, happens and it's like, Oh man, now I have to choose between, do I stay at home and like still try and fill that tag? Or, you know, this is the time I was going to go travel this other state that happened to us, like trying to go out to South Dakota last year. It always, it always is like a big mess and you gotta, it seems like we always had to play it day by day once the season actually yeah. starts. And that's exactly it. Like you got to kind of fly by the seat of your pants. There's, there's no telling where I'm going to be like mid October, late October. The only thing that I have set in stone is Kansas mid November, but anything besides that, I mean, it, it literally depends on how fast I can fill tags and yep. if I can at all. Yeah. Awesome. Well, enjoy talking to you. Um, once again, appreciate you taking the time out of your night. Uh, that answered a lot of good questions that I had. I'm going to probably go back on, on uh, Spartan Forge after this and start marking some more waypoints, thinking of it from the context of some of the stuff you said today and thinking of it from like a low access, less food on top and see just what else I can find that maybe I haven't looked at in the past. So a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Keep me updated. I'm uh, excited to follow along this year. Absolutely. Where can people follow along if they want to see kind of what you're doing, follow along the deer season? So I do have a little YouTube going. It's uh, Legends of the Hunt, and I've got the hunt from my Ohio season the last two years. Um, both pretty good bucks. It was it was a lot of fun. And then you can follow along at Jake Bush Solo on Instagram. I try to do a couple of different things. Like I'll do like um, live stories about scouting. Like, you know, I'll get in a bed and explain the specific situation and why I think it'll be a good spot and how I would kind of target that area. So I hope that there's a little bit to take away from that, but yeah, you're more than welcome to follow along and it'd be great. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.